Hello, I'm John Chambers, and welcome to Chambers Talks. It's a discussion about tech disruption, leadership in the tech industry. How do you do innovation? How do you have the courage to change before the market forces you to change? I'm talking with a very good friend and Peggy Johnson today. I got to know her well when she was at Microsoft in charge of the business development, executive vice president there, and an amazing person for six years. Uh, before that, she was with Qualcomm for 25 years, uh, who's an amazing semiconductor company. And now she's heading up Magic Leap and the augmented reality environment, very similar to the internet, uh, the cloud, and now artificial intelligence augmented reality is very likely to be the future in many ways. So it's a chance to share views with people in the audience. If you agree with everything Peggy and I covered today, we failed. We want to make you a little bit uncomfortable in terms of the direction. So Peggy, I want to thank you very much for joining us today. And it's an honor to have you on my program. John, thank you for having me. It's so good to see you. Really appreciate this. Thanks. Well, it'll be a lot of fun and give and take. You know, you, I'm going to start with the big picture of the industry first, then bring it down to augmented reality and and really what is it, how does it change, where do you see its applicability? Uh, you've seen a lot of innovation with the companies we talked about uh, from before, with Microsoft and Qualcomm in particular. The industry transitions going on today are different in some ways and similar to what you've seen with the internet, with the cloud, uh, et cetera. How are they similar and how are they different versus what you and I have experienced? Well, yeah, and I've gone through all, so many of those cycles. I would say what is a constant is the hype cycle part of it, because I think any technology, when it's first talked about, there's a lot of flash around it, um, a lot of excitement around it. Um, and then it seems to slump a bit because you really need a product market fit um, to, to ensure that this technology can take off. And sometimes that's not always clear within early days in, in with the technology. I mean, I'm going back to my Qualcomm days. I remember when we were first starting to make a mobile phone, um, we thought, you know, wow, this thing is, everyone's going to have one of these. Um, it's And the biggest we could think of was that it was going to take away um, phone booths. Like you wouldn't have to stop and park and go into a phone booth to make a call. It's going to be amazing. And even that point took a long time because it kind of started with car phones and even just to get to the point where it really could take the place of a phone booth took much longer than I think anybody really thought. So the hype is, is definitely a constant. I think what's different is perhaps the speed of exposure that the masses get to these technologies. Completely it, agree. It, yeah, like when my parents are talking about Bitcoin and, and NFTs, like, you know, that the speed of exposure is really quick. And that is something that uh, can help and can hurt uh, technologies because people can also be very dismissive when they don't see that product market fit move on and, and the technology struggles for a spot. Um, so that's probably the biggest difference I've seen over the years. I could not agree with more. I'd, I'd say the internet was three times the speed of traditional business. Now the transitions we're seeing with AI and probably augmented reality is again, three to four times even faster. And the mistakes made in terms of people cooling on the technology about the time it takes off. AI for six years, I've been pushing it hard and a bunch of startups in the area only in the last six months has it gone mainline. So I get it. When you look at these technologies, what are some of the lessons learned, both on your past experience, but current, 
in terms of how do you position a company that is going to cross the chasm with new technology? How do you have the patience to determine when do you invest, when do you not, and when do you know when to change course? Yeah, I, you know, I would go back to the product market fit. The issue that a lot of technologies have is, is it going to, does it really solve a problem for anybody? Um, and, and it's easy to look out in the future and imagine how that technology can solve it. But a lot of times there's other things around the technology that are required to also be in the same shape in order for it all to work together and for it to actually become a mass market product. And I think we felt that a little bit in the early days of, of Magically, we pointed at the consumer market. Um, it was too early for, for the consumer market. There wasn't an ecosystem. The device itself was a little big and, and expensive. Uh, yes. When a phone on the shelf right next to it was much more performant than, than the device we were trying to launch. And so it, it's, it's important that you look at the state of the technology as it is today and say, what problem does that solve? And not what could it solve in, in the future? Because you need to continue to be able to develop it. And if you can't start to you know, show that promise, you're not gonna get to the end game. You know, one more question before we jump into augmented reality a little bit more uh, in terms of uh, the transition where you're focused. You've done big companies and leaderships in, in some of the hottest companies in each of their respective technology segments. Now you're doing startup. Which ones do you like better and why? I wish I'd discovered startups earlier. I, it took me doing 180 acquisitions to realize I love doing the startups and scaling them. What do you like about the big companies? What do you like about the small ones? And, and, and do you have a favorite child at this time in terms of which one do you like better? Well, um, now that I'm at a startup for the first time in my career, really, because I worked at two very big iconic companies in Qualcomm and Microsoft, I have to say, I do like the startup environment. Um, you know, but the good things about a big company, I think, are obvious. You've got lots of resources. When, uh, when you know, in a startup, when you say, I wonder if somebody has any experience in, in government affairs, you know, we, we typically don't have a big team of government affairs, but at Microsoft, they did. You could go ask for that expertise. A lot of that is what is, you know, is missing in a startup because they're in startup mode. We can't exactly fund all of those things. Um, and, and, but, you know, then the, the other thing about startups is that you, you wear a lot of hats and I like that. I have found though, some people aren't comfortable with that. You know, they, some people that have come from big companies feel that I'm the government affairs person just to continue with that analogy. And that's what I do. And they can't, they can't get outside of, of their area of expertise um, and, and they feel uncomfortable. So we, you, when you move into a startup, you have to be okay with wearing a lot of hats. You know, someday it's the, uh, the attorney hat and <laughs> someday it's the product hat and someday it's the engineering hat. And um, you have to be able to do a little bit of all of those things. But I love that. There's there's high highs and there's low lows in a startup. And, and now that I'm here, I wouldn't want it any other way. You know, it's interesting. Uh, about half the people who come from large companies and small ones fail. 
because they're used to having the support behind them and staying in their mm -hmm. swim lanes. And in a small company, number one, you have a problem every day, not once a quarter. Uh, and you have to be comfortable in that environment. And well-run small companies have both experience that have been there and done it before, but also people who are fearless. And just because it hasn't been done before, we want to be a part of it. So prioritization becomes very key. When you think about educating us, let's, let's assume that I know very little uh, about your field of expertise, and that, that will be where about half the viewers are. What exactly is augmented reality, and how does that differ from other technologies such as virtual reality, uh, mixed reality, et cetera? Can you kind of start with the basic and bring our audience up to speed on where you're focused and where you're not in this category? Sure, and you're right, these terms can be confusing and they oftentimes all get mixed together in the conversation around the metaverse. Um, anything reality gets thrown in and it gets stirred up and they're really actually quite different technologies. So we make an augmented reality device and it's a headset. When you put it on, you still see your physical world. It's like glasses. You look through, you see your physical world, and then we intelligently integrate digital content into that physical world. And it's not just a, a heads-up display um, like you might have seen, you know, in a, in a fighter pilot movie or something, a heads-up display on a in the cockpit. It's actually digital content that is in the environment. It knows the physical um, constraints of your environment. So if there's a table in front of you, we can put some digital content on that table. It could be a model of a, a car that we're designing together. Um, but you do still see your physical world. You can walk around. You won't trip over the coffee table. <laughs> you, you have the freedom to, um, to, to, to maintain the physical world around you, but to interact with digital content. Now, virtual reality is when you put on a device and you're fully inside a virtual world. We call it being fully occluded. You don't see your physical world. Largely, the experiences with virtual reality are meant to be immobile. So you don't want to be walking around and running into walls and things because you, you want to be able to um, take in this, this virtual experience around you. But um, it's, it's difficult to, to actually navigate your physical world. And, and then mixed reality is, is, is somewhere in between where you have elements of both of those things together. And, and all of them you can really think of as a tool. So um, for instance, with virtual reality, you, there's a lot of gaming experiences and entertainment, as you might imagine. You put on a headset, you enter another world. You know, you could be on the face of the moon and doing things and, and, um, and, and that's a lot of fun and generally super entertaining. Augmented reality in its current state, we see as more of a tool for helping augment whatever it is you're doing already. So if you imagine um, being a factory worker, you come in, you put your headset on, you look at a machine that someone has said has gone offline and it, it's your job to fix it. We can put on top of that machine what's called a digital twin. So we have a digital image overlaid on top of the machine and it might say, start here, check this gauge. And you know, there's, a, there's an arrow down to the gauge. You look at it, oh, the gauge is hot. Next step, open this door over here. Um, go get this tool and walk you through a repair. 
which is quite different than what a worker does today, which may be go and find the manual, flip through the manual till you till you think you're at the right spot to, to fix this machine that's gone offline. Um, the time to resolution tends to be quite short with augmented reality. You just put the headset on, jump right in. Your hands are free to do the job because it's fully on your eyes, like, kind of like a PC on your eyes. Got it. Um, that's the, those are the biggest uh, differences between those two technologies. How do you pick which areas to get into first? With the internet, uh, oddly enough, it was very simple things, entering orders online, doing customer service, even the virtual close was was kind of, quote, a boring scenario, except the CFOs on what we did. How do you pick the right industry for augmented reality? And are there specific application areas within the industries that you're focusing on? Because you've, you've got to get the areas that are going to be able to scale to get your machine going and differentiated. Yeah, and you certainly picked the right ones with the internet because those things were sort of the, the obvious ones, this data entry. It was something that they were already doing, but you made it better using the internet. And that that is the sort of thing we look for. How does our product, how does any AR product make an existing job faster, um, more productive, more efficient, lower costs? There has to be a reason for people to adopt that. So we first looked at industries that were already using headsets in some way, whether it was just safety goggles in, in a factory um, or surgeons in an operating room who generally have something on their eyes, whether it's, um, uh, you know, something to, to help them uh, see, you know, the patient better, whatever those industries are that were comfortable already with something on top of their eyes while they were doing their job seemed to us to be the easy entry points. And so we started there and, um, and it proved correct. They were already wearing something. This wasn't a big uh, change to put an, this augmented reality device on them. And they were able to do their jobs better. As I mentioned, the factory worker could do their job less time, faster. They had more cycles to do more, you know, than, than uh, maybe previous to having the headset on. Surgeons could be more accurate in their surgery. They are, they're able to actually see it rather than having a 2D screen on the wall with a, a, a CAT scan that that CAT scan can be volumized in 3D and overlaid on the patient's actual organ. And so you can imagine how game-changing that is. And so if we, they can do their job better, they will adopt it. And that's exactly what we found. The other area is any kind of training, uh, particularly in the defense space. Training tends to be very expensive when you have to move around physical uh, items in a training room. Now everything can be digital inside that room and you can flip a scenario in a matter of minutes rather than perhaps taking a few hours to change it into a new training scenario. So if it's cheaper, faster, more productive, more efficient, and we prove that, they adopt it. Got it. Um, how do you handle the question about is AR here to stay not a fleeting trend? Because that was the question I got for almost six or seven years at Cisco on the internet. We've got it on cloud. Uh, you know, six years ago when I focused on artificial intelligence, we nailed it, I thought pretty well. 
nobody really was on board with it in a big way until six months ago. How do you get people comfortable with why they've got to be early in this tech category and that it's going to be a category that stays uh, for the longer term? Yeah, so we looked for any kind of differentiation today, something I could prove out today that would be useful to an existing process and as I said, make it faster, smarter, you know, more efficient. And there are, there are technologies out there, one might say similar to AR, as I said, a heads-up display. Now, a heads-up display can solve for a lot of things. If you just need to know uh, sort of what are the next steps throughout your workflow process in a day, you can imagine a little screen, put on some glasses, a little screen that takes you through those steps. Our device is on a completely different level. It's very highly immersive. Um, it, as I said, it, it maps the world around you. It knows where the physical items are and it can put digital content there that you actually can interact with. So why would someone want that versus just a heads up display? And, and so we really sat back and it, because it's easy to get um, pulled into the hype cycle um, that says, you know, wow, you know, what can your, can your product do that? Yeah, our product can do that, but it can do so much more. And I'm not going to solve for that because there's devices already solving for that. I'm going to solve for what we do best, which is very yeah. high, you know, very high resolution on any text. Like we, we could put up any number of virtual screens in front of your eyes and they're not messy, sloppy mixes. They, you, they're very crisp. You see that text. So you can imagine you can imagine a surgeon who's looking over at a patient's vitals on the physical machine and, and, and every time they do, they have to take their eyes off the patient. Why not have those vitals in front of their eyes, but, but intelligently in front of their eyes? So as they look down at the patient, it moves up. It's not overlaying the patient. The, the vitals are in, in a field of view that's comfortable for them. So it's, it's really the intelligent placement of the digital content that we, that the type of device we make excels in. And that's where I think anybody who has a new technology has to focus on, because if you're just, you know, doing something that another device, possibly a cheaper device can do, you're not gonna win. You've gotta do the differentiating thing that's valuable. And that's so important that you pick those right things from day one. And I believe we have in this case. You know, takeaway for all of our viewers, uh, it's most important to say, what is your sustainable differentiation and how are you going to maintain that in the market and understand it crisply yet? So many startups fail to really think through that. You had the courage to take a company that was focused on the consumer and flip it to the enterprise. I did the reverse. I tried twice to get in the consumer market at Cisco from the business market. I failed both times. Steve Jobs handed me my head on the second time through. But to make a transition like that and say, where are you going and have the courage to be all in is hard. What was the approach that came to the conclusion why enterprise was the right time to move on this now? And what were some of the lessons learned, much like you did with your last question, that you could share for the audience that might be in related areas that they can learn from as well? Sure. And by the way, John, the lessons you learned, I'm sure as you look back, they're so valuable because they they are not, any sort of a failure, or I always say a learning, um, is additive to whatever 
you do next. And, and I've had the exact same things throughout my career. And I always went and said, what is my takeaway from this that'll help me the next time I'm faced with a similar product or problem? And um, as, I, as I was coming into the company, I knew a couple of things. I knew that the technology worked. I had seen it already. The technology was awesome. Placing digital content in front of your eyes, it could do that all day, every day. Beautiful yep. technology. But when I looked at their, you know, how they had started um, really first in consumer, their, their big problem was a mobile phone sitting next to it. As I said, it was, it was as performant as uh, our device, but more performant. It had a bigger ecosystem, you know, apps in the thousands that you could download. Um, it was lightweight. It was cheap. It did the job. Um, lots of content being developed for mobile phone. So the, to me, the right entry point looked very similar to the mobile phone, going back to my Qualcomm days, where the first mobile phones were sold to enterprise. They were expensive. They were big. Remember, big, big things. And, but they were useful because they solved a problem for the enterprise space. In, in that case, you didn't have to stop and park and find a phone booth. You could call from your car. It was amazing, um, but they were they were expensive. So they were in the beginning, initially out of the reach of the mass market. And so when I looked at the state of the technology, we believed that the right entry point was enterprise because it was good enough technology to solve problems in the enterprise space. Then we further did another crank on the development of the hardware. If you're in the enterprise space and you're using this as a tool, and we're saying it'd be great in an industrial settings. Well, they've got to wear that thing all day long. It can't be hot. It can't be clunky. Um, it, you, it, you have to be able to be comfortable in it all day long. Can't bother your nose because it, it's so heavy. It, yeah. it has to be comfortable. So we did another spin of the hardware and um, incorporated things we'd been hearing from folks in uh, who had who had used the initial product and tried it for those use cases. And that made a big difference. So we tuned the product for enterprise. And we also, um, from a software perspective, had to do a similar refresh. We had to put in it things like, you know, the data privacy and security things that corporate IT infrastructures count on if they're going to bring a device into their network. None of that was existent in the consumer product, the initial consumer product. So it made a lot of sense that we knew we could solve problems on the, on the enterprise side. We headed in that direction, but we did have to fine tune it a bit more in order to be able to be accepted into an enterprise infrastructure. Uh, a related question. At Microsoft, you all did a very good job of partnering with startups and partnering with other key players. Uh, and, and reading about your all strategy, uh, I now see that you've partnered with NVIDIA and AMD. And so a question is, how do you pick your partners? And is it just large partners or you see it also for other startups that you interface to? We do have small and large partners. Those are, are two of the larger ones. Um, I think, you know, when you get to a large partner, you do have to be careful about what is their agenda uh, in, in a partnership with me, the smaller company, um, because you don't want to get lost in, in their higher priorities or objectives. You want to have shared objectives. 
And we saw that both with AMD and with NVIDIA. With AMD, um, we use a semi-custom chip that they de help develop with alongside our engineers. And basically when we started this, you know, many years going back many years before I was at the company, they knew they needed a powerful chip, not, not you know, I shouldn't say just a mobile phone because mobile phones chips are pretty powerful, but they really needed a step above. They needed sort of a PC level type of chip to do all this rendering and making sure that that content looks good in front of your eyes. And so finding a partner in AMD who saw that vision and could see the future with us was all important. Um, you know, the mobile phone chips, they were out there, we could have chosen them, but we knew we wanted something that would differentiate us further and that and that drew us to AMD and they, they definitely had that shared vision of the future. With NVIDIA, they've built a very interesting platform called Omniverse. And as a small company, if I integrate to the Omniverse platform, it opens up all of the integrations that they've done on that on top of it. So for instance, we do a lot of 3D visualization rather than me going to all the, you know, the CAD companies and uh, folks like maybe Adobe, AutoCAD, those folks and, and having one-on-one -on -one integrations, I can work with Omniverse and NVIDIA who've already done a lot of those integrations and then have access to those. That gives me scale. So that's the, the reason that it made a whole lot of sense for us to partner with NVIDIA because it would have taken me years to do what I have access to once I do the initial integration to Omniverse. And that there made all the difference in the world with that partnership. Got it, makes tremendous sense. You know, I always believe you've got to say, where is the short-term opportunity? And you've got to get your, your growth and your profitability coming from the short-term very carefully selected areas. Paint the picture of augmented reality five years from now. Uh, what are your dreams and aspirations yet realistic on where the industry will be in this with this technology five and 10 years out? Certainly, I believe by that time, we will have a consumer product out the door. And, and why does it take that long? I think, again, going back to the mobile phone, the silicon has to integrate, got to take a lot of the components and integrate that into one, uh, one piece of hardware in there so that you can get to the small light type of glasses format that I believe consumers are going to de demand in, in the space. I think the other thing that I, I'm looking forward to is this is a, you can think of this as a new, the net, really the next paradigm in computing. And right now, when we think about computing, we've got a PC in our pocket with our mobile phone, but it requires us to, first of all, lose the use of our hands because we're usually one or two handed holding it up to our eyes and looking at it. But when we do that, what are we doing? We aren't looking at our actual world. I see and I envision a world where we have our heads back up again. <laughs> We're back in the physical world. And particularly post-pandemic, you know, who doesn't want that? <laughs> we don't, we've got to get our heads out of our, our phones and back into our physical world so we can enjoy uh, that part of life. You know, one of the questions on leadership that I often get is if the person is a business leader, learning about engineering and learning how to be a good business leader in engineering is hard for them. You came with a strong engineering background. 
how difficult was it for you to learn the business side and any key takeaways for any of the listeners? Sure. Yeah. I um, I remember distinctly the day I walked across the parking lot from the engineering department at Qualcomm to the business department because all the engineers were jeering at my back saying, where are you going? You know, you have to dress up over there. You're going to have to wear fancy clothes and you can't just wear your Qualcomm t-shirt. I mean, they, they were adamant I not do that. But for me, I felt like I had the tools. You know, a lot of engineering is problem solving. A lot of business is problem solving. Something happens, how do you fix it? And so I felt like I was equipped with the tools to, to make that walk across the parking lot. But one thing I found is that I loved, I loved explaining technical things to non-business people, or, or sorry, I should say non-technical people, which yes. generally folks in the business building. Yes. And they, the company was taking me out along with them on um, business calls and would turn it over to me to explain what Qualcomm was doing with, uh, it was a satellite communication system that we were working on back then. And I loved that part of it, you know, really breaking things down, you know, t- talking to a, a person who doesn't have a technical background and telling them why this is useful, what problem it solves for them, you know, why they should invest in it. What is what is the ROI for this piece of technology? Love that. And so I found that I love that the most, I should say. I was passionate about that. And so the other thing I, you know, that I learned is you should definitely follow your passion. I could have stayed in engineering. I liked it, um, but I loved getting in front of the customer and and using what I could bring, the tools I could bring from my engineering um, experience and background. And uh, that was, that ended up being the sweet spot for me. You know, over the years, Peggy, we've talked about the importance of building inclusive teams and gender diversity in those teams. You know, how much progress have we made in the last decade? And what do you think are the two or three areas we need to do better? And are there any specific areas that you're personally involved in? Yeah, I do think we've made progress. Um, I wish we could have made more progress for sure. Yeah, you know, it's still, you still run into pockets and corners where people don't see the value of it. And and for me, I I do feel if you can convince people of the value, there obviously there's reasons to do it because it's the right thing to do. But if they've also seen value, like, is my product going to be better if I actually think about everybody? Yes, <laughs> because you will sell more. And that's something that um, sometimes gets lost in the talk about um, diversity and inclusion. And, and it, it's something that I've tried to highlight and all along my career. I, I remember going back, uh, and I'm sure the folks I worked with uh, We'll, we'll laugh at this, but I we at Qualcomm, we had made one of the first smartphones, a CDMA smartphone. And when we first envisioned it, you know, basically we took the Palm Pilot and, and a cell phone and we put a piece of duct tape around it. We said, this is what we want, you know, we want to have the smarts of a Palm Pilot into a communicating device like our mobile phones and put it together. And the thing we built was about as big as that. It was not a not a bit smaller. It was big. It was it was you know cumbersome, and I remember thinking, how would I ever carry that thing around? 
and talking to my bosses at the time. And they said, we well, put it in your pocket. And I thought, well, I, you know, oftentimes I don't have pockets. So I have to put it in a purse and my purse isn't always with me. Sometimes it's across the desk or across the room or down the hall. So it kind of didn't work for me. And it kind of fell on deaf ears. They, uh, the folks on the team thought, well, sorry, it doesn't work for you. It works for us, you know, as a bunch of guys. <laughs> and I think right there is the power of just understanding how a product can work for everybody because you're going to sell more. Don't you want to sell more or whatever you're building? Yes. So that is something that I've tried to focus people on when, when, we, when that topic comes up. There's all sorts of reasons, not just the right reason, but there's all sorts of business reasons to do it as well. And that sometimes drives things faster. And so I go with whatever drives it faster because we need more integration, more diversity across the board. And so I focused on that. I couldn't agree with you more. One of my qu favorite questions that I ask almost every one of our guests is, can you share with the audience something that you know now that you wish you had learned 20 or 25 years earlier? Because it makes such a difference. And it goes back to everything from mentorship to you mentoring the audience about, boy, if I'd just known the value for me of a playbook, which I viewed as bureaucracy, but a playbook, well-thought-out process, it isn't a bad word. It actually allows you to move with speed no one else can match. If, is there a key takeaway that comes to mind, something you learned and you know now that you wish you'd known earlier that you could share with the audience? Yeah, and, and it was actually pivotal to my career. But I have to give you a little bit of background. So, you know, going back <laughs> quite a number of years ago, we won't have to go into how many, when I first started as an engineer, um, I was, I was always for, I felt like for, for the longest time, the only female in the room and I, and I would feel isolated. And I was, I also am introverted and I'm quiet by nature. And um, I just thought I am not right for this career to, to be an engineer, because I was always told you need to speak up more. Um, you need to be much more aggressive uh, you need to be more like the guys. I, I was told that all the time. Be more like the guys. If you want to be successful, you can recognize. And I remember one day just kind of stopping in my tracks and saying, I am never going to be a guy. I just, I've tried <laughs> to sometimes disastrous results. I, I would try to be something I wasn't. And I was spending so much time being something I wasn't. So my advice would be just be yourself. Because whoever you are, you, you bring value in, in who you are. And that is something, it took me years to learn. But when I finally realized that, and I actually sat down with my manager at the time, because I said, I'm, I'm going to leave, I'm going to quit, because I don't think I'm right for engineering. And he saw what, what was happening and said, no, you're staying right where you are. And I'm going to help out. Um, so it was great. It was a, it was a good um, friend and mentor as well as being my manager. And, and things started to change. I took a deep breath and said, okay, I'm a quiet person. I communicate. I just communicate differently. It might not be in a big room with a lot of people, but I'd go over to someone's office afterwards and, and get my point across. So I was communicating in my way. And he respected that. He also helped me in meetings I would say, he would say, I'm going to throw you the ball, use a sports analogy. And I'm like, okay. And so yeah. he 
make space in that meeting for me to speak up because I was always waiting for the opening and sometimes never got it because my nature was not to break in and to bust in. And so he helped me there as well. But if I hadn't shared that with him, you know, things wouldn't have changed and I would have left engineering very likely. And so, so the point to everybody, and it could be if you're loud and, and assertive or quiet, <laughs> um, or you're very much an individual or you're more of more comfortable on a team, just be yourself because that's when you're going to deliver your best work product and fighting to be something that others want you to be uh, ends up taking all your time and you don't, you don't deliver your best work product as I saw. And so that would be the one thing I would say <laughs> if I had to wind back, be myself. Yeah, it's interesting. All of us have been through that and struggle with it forever. Mine was public speaking and it was just hard. And I had to learn to adjust to that being dyslexic. I think that's a great question to end on because we started with the vision of the industry, your experience, we end up with making things very personal and the sharing of your experiences for those listening. Uh, I know you're going to be successful, Peggy. I know your company will be as well. I want to thank you for being on Chambers Talk today. I want to remind everyone to leave us a five-star rating if you think we've earned it today and subscribe to the regular podcast. And once again, Peggy, it was an honor. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, John. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure.